For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Allowing us to share, and, and Pastor Tanya as well, and all of you, we feel very much at home coming back. Thank you, Rita, for doing such a great job raising your daughter that she'd put up with me all these years. And uh, uh, we're very grateful uh, to have a home here at Faith Walk, and uh, uh, really can't say enough how grateful we are uh, to be connected with you. Um, tonight, uh, you, you get to endure me just for a little bit tonight so that you'll have the great pleasure of hearing my wife preach on Sunday morning. And so be sure to come in greater numbers uh, to, to hear her. And, and uh, don't misunderstand how I mean that. I'm, I'm thrilled to, to be with you tonight. Uh, what I mean is not greater numbers than you hear are here tonight as though this was was improper in some way. I mean, come in greater numbers than you would if it was just me. She is uh, 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 fired up, and God has something for her particularly to share with you. But uh, tonight, uh, you know, I uh, uh, am more of a teacher than anything else, and so I'm, I want to share with you some things uh, about the nature and necessity of true revival. And don't you know our our, our country... Our countries need revival. Amen? And uh, we're going to talk about what that is and, and how to recognize it. Uh, main, mainly, I, I want to start just reading a passage of the Bible. The Bible's a good place to start if you want to talk about revival. And it's ironic how rare it is to start there. But, uh, you know, in Acts chapter, thir- uh, chapter 3, Peter and John, they are um, used of God to bring healing to a lame man. And this lame man starts to walk, leap, praise God. People are astounded. They want to hear now what Peter has to say. And uh, he explains that this man was healed by the power of Jesus and the authority that's in his name. And by the way, that name, Jesus, still has all the power and authority that it ever did. And faith in that name will do today the same thing it ever did. But Peter, when he was called on to defend himself for this outrageous thing of bringing healing to a lame man, he says, well, it's through Jesus that he was healed. And let's just pick up in verse uh, uh, 11. Well, Acts chapter 3, verse 11, we're going to highlight a couple verses and, and jump off from there when we get there. While he clung, that is the man who was lame, to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran toward them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. If you were going to kill anybody, the man who wears the title author of life probably ought not to be high on your list. 
you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, you, you see, uh, the, uh, one aspect of, of the anointing of the Holy Spirit being on him is he, he could speak so boldly as to say, you killed the author of life. Look what you did. And then turn around and say, but now, brothers, because I'm just like you. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Now, verse 19 is why we read all that. Verse 19 says, Repent, therefore. Anytime you see the word therefore, you got to ask what it's there for, right? So that's why we read verses 11 through 16. Just as a side note, one big obstacle to revival, it's so simple that um, it shouldn't need much more than this. People go, well, you know, because of Jesus in the New Testament, we don't have to repent. I never repent anymore. I don't repent. Peter never knew that. Here, here he shares the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus rose from the dead and his name brings healing. And he says, because of that, you ought to repent. And so if what you understand the gospel to be or to mean for you somehow means, well, that means I, you know, I know there's a song that says love means never having to say you're sorry, but that is not found in the Bible, right? And so if your gospel uh, makes you think, well, this means I never have to repent, that's an anti-gospel. The gospel Peter preached said, now because of that, you ought to repent. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. But there's a promise attached. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. We're commanded, repent and turn back so that your sins may be blotted out. And... The, the promise, if we'll do that, if we'll turn afresh and anew to God, is that times of refreshing will come from the presence of Jesus. When it says that, um, uh, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, this, this speaks to me more than simply the blessed hope that one day Jesus will return. But the Christ, the anointed one, and his anointing, when there is a fresh turning to him among Christians who are gathered in his name, that anointing comes afresh and anew among us. And the Holy Spirit, he lives in you, yes, and he dwells on you, but more, when we gather and times of refreshing come among us, he, he's, he fills this place. And, and you sh can just envision without a whole lot of imagination because it's a spiritual reality. Jesus himself walking up and down the aisles of our, of our meeting places and just getting in the pew next to you to minister to you. That this, this is the promise of times of refreshing. Have you, ever, have you ever found yourself tired or worn out trying to do the work of God? If you haven't, you probably haven't tried very hard, right? But uh, the, there's... 
there's, there's times where we get, you know, feel dry or, or, or worn out. And the enemy would come along in that time and say, well, you know, the reason you feel down and maybe worn out or, or stretched a little bit is because there must be something wrong. There must be sin in your life. If you were doing it right, this... But here, times of refreshing, multiple times. Notice it doesn't say just one time, multiple times. So I don't, if you hear this and go, well, this isn't for me because I repented in 72 and got refreshed, I'm good. That water might not be living anymore, right? It needs to be refreshed, times of refreshing, multiple times. And God knew that in walking with him, following him, walking his path, we would need to be refreshed more than once. Times of refreshing would come from the presence of the Lord. So when I talk about revival, this is what I mean, times of refreshing from heaven. Now, it's a popular pastime among people who, well, who have too much spare time to debate what is revival really. I, I prefer this. What if instead of debating about the definition of revival, we just prayed until we saw one? There was a, there's a Supreme Court justice in the U.S. Years ago, there was a case about uh, pornography, and in, her, in, in the majority ruling, she wrote this about pornography. She goes, listen, I don't know how to define pornography, but I know it when I see it. I, I would like to adopt a, a definition of revival that's somewhat similar. I might not know how to define pornography. Uh, well, let's leave pornography aside. Hopefully you don't know how to define it either. But uh, I might not know how to define revival, but we'll know it when we see it. We'll know it when we see it. Uh, now, one of the things about revival is Sometimes we think, and I, I say this as someone who's done a, a teaching at different Bible schools in context, one of the, the dangers of, of, uh, in our thinking about revival uh, in our sort of culture is we think, well, if we just get our doctrine or our teaching quite right, well, then that is uh, going to be a key to revival. If we just get our thinking straight, our doctrine straight, we, we could teach people into revival. Listen. First, if education would have done it, there are more universities than, than I don't know what uh, across our land. We still desperately need revival. The universities that were founded to educate people into revival need revival. In fact, um, years ago, uh, to, just to underline uh, the state of education and its inability to bring revival, but also the, the inability of, of or, or the indifference of God, if you will, towards our uh, theological debates. The first great awakening in the U.S. happened, uh, it was kind of centered around Jonathan Edwards' time uh, pastoring in uh, the Boston area in the late 1700s. Now, Jonathan Edwards was one of the first principals of uh, Yale University when it was a divinity school. Is anybody looking to Yale for revival today? Right? And, and then he went on to be one of the first principals or deans of Princeton, which was also a school founded to, to train preachers. So neither of those schools are at the, the cutting edge of revival right now. I pray that changes. Thank God for the good that they do. 
but they've strayed from their original purpose. Jonathan Edwards, he's referred to, we'll come back to him, he's, he's referred to by secular historians as the greatest thinker the Americas have ever produced. And he is one of the foremost modern writers, modern in a broad sense from the 1700s, um, to outline what's called a reformed theology. Now, doesn't matter if you know the ins and outs of Reformed theology or if you can't spell Reformed theology. You just need to know Jonathan Edwards represented it. And God blessed his ministry with tremendous revival. It shaped the course of this nation and does to this day. Now, at the same time, across the pond where my ancestors lived at the time, Jonathan Wesley, he was used uh, in a mighty way to change society in Great Britain. Profound revival. And in fact, almost every charismatic Pentecostal denomination today really traces its roots back to the Wesleyan revival. God blessed John. You still see Wesleyan churches. They were named for him. Now, John Wesley might not recognize them anymore, but they still bear his name. Theologically, John Wesley is at the opposite end of the spectrum of Jonathan Edwards. If, if they, they're probably in heaven arguing right now about the finer points of their theology. And yet the Holy Spirit seemed utterly disinterested in whether we should be reformed or Arminian or what is the role of free will and God's sovereignty and all these things. Like, that's really interesting. The Holy Spirit just apparently didn't care one whit because he brought revival there and he brought revival there and he said, you, you know, listen, you can sort, you have eternity to sort out your theology, but you, you only have a finite time here on earth to win souls. And we need revival we need revival. Now, Jonathan Edwards, like I said, he is, is by secular historians called the greatest thinker that the Americas have ever produced. And he, um, he wrote a lot about a revival that broke out in his church. In fact, maybe in, I know in American history too, and, and uh, um, in high school, we, we learned about, I went to high school in the U.S., in New Jersey, it's still part of the U.S., but the, um, uh, the, um, you, you may have studied uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That's probably Jonathan Edwards' most famous sermon. And uh, that had such a profound effect on worshipers in his church that uh, there were fingernail marks on the pews from people not wanting, they, they were scared of descending into hell. They were trembling under the conviction of God. There were people outside listening to him gripping trees to not be swept away under God's judgment. And you might say, that's awfully extreme. But, and I, I would tend to agree, but is it not true that today we might have an opposite extreme where people just, even people who claim to worship Jesus say, well, he's like my buddy, he's my pal. And we might be an extreme on the other, while we might recoil in horror saying, well, they, they seemed awfully over awed at the wrath of God. Do you know, today, they might look at us and be a little, you know, put off to the same extent 
by how much we, we tend to look at him as our pal. Do you know the Apostle John who walked closer with Jesus uh, than any, uh, uh, well, almost any other human uh, on the earth and lived longer than any other apostle, when he heard, it, it was John who laid his head on Jesus' uh, uh, breast at the Last Supper and identified himself as the apostle whom Jesus loved. If anybody was Jesus' pal, it was him. And yet, decades later, after all the other apostles have passed away, he's the last man on earth who saw Jesus in the flesh. And when he was on the Isle of Patmos and he heard Jesus' voice, he did not turn around and say, hello, old friend. He fell at his knees as though dead in awe and worship. And so, anyways, uh, I digress. Jonathan Edwards, because of the, the magnitude of physical response and manifestations, people falling down under the power of God, uh, same thing happened in Wesley's revival. They, we don't know what's happening. We'll just keep preaching to this side. Uh, but, uh, you know, people falling down, people trembling, people weeping, people calling out, d different things. And they said, you're a very educated, learned man. You need to bring some order and um, uh, uh, instruction to these people. They're getting a little out of hand. And he actually wrote back and defended the manifestations and the responses. And I want to share with you, in, in my own words, with some of his quotes, some, some things he said about signs of revival. I, I would, like many of us, maybe prefer if I could say, here's five steps that if you do these things, you'll have revival. Like if you combine these five ingredients and put them in the oven for this amount of time, revival just pops out. God doesn't work that way, right? So the, I, I'm not saying these are think if you, I don't have keys like that, but there are, are some signs. There are some, some recognizable traits. And, and Edwards, he divided these signs of revival into what he called negative signs and then positive signs. The negative signs simply mean they're signs that they don't mean anything, okay? You might see them, you might not. Uh, it's it's kind of like if you surveyed all the churches in Illinois, you might find that all the successful churches have pulpits. So if you find a pulpit in a building, does that mean it's a successful church? Well, no, that's just, that's an irrelevant sign, right? Uh, one of the biggest real estate trends in a lot of our leading cities is buying old ch churches and turning them into condos and nightclubs, and you'll find uh, restaurants with pulpits in them, right? So, um, they're, they're negative signs. We're going to start with the negative signs. Because the thing is, when, when we pray um, and worship and when the Spirit of God takes hold of a people, sometimes you'll see some of these things, some, but you might not necessarily. If we think these things are signs of revival, you're susceptible to a decoy. Uh, and at, at worst, but at best, you're susceptible for settling for second best. And so what are some of the what are some of the negative signs? First, he said novelty. That when things are unusual or out, of, or out of the ordinary. Some people think, well, you know, their favorite scripture is, is from the Old Testament where it says, Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Right? And uh, their, their defense for everything is, it's a new thing. It's a new thing. It might be a wrong thing and a stupid thing and a crazy thing. But as long as it's a new thing, they're for it. Right? Well, God... 
God does do new things, but not everything new is from God. You know, innovation is to be valued in a whole lot of fields. Theology is not one of them. <laughs> so novelty, things being unusual or out of the ordinary. You've probably often heard, well, you know, I heard revivals breaking out of there. There's, there's things happening there nobody's ever seen or heard. Well, I, that can be good. It could be dangerous. I don't know. It doesn't mean anything one way or another. One thing Edward said about novelty is simply this. What the church has been used to is not a rule by which we are to judge. Famous last words are, well, we've never done it that way before. That might be a, a, a hint, right? <laughs> that, uh, what the church is used to is not a rule by which we are to judge. If we were to, you know, if the church were to judge by past patterns, well, you'd have to just cut out the whole book of Acts. Speaking in tongues, well, we never did that before. You know, uh, seeing this lame man healed, only Jesus is allowed to do that. So novelty will probably be part of a revival. Uh, it likely would be, but it's not necessarily. Um, uh, things being unusual or out of the ordinary um, are just a negative sign. But so are physical effects. Physical effects, uh, emotion, trembling, shaking, tears, weeping, laughter, running, dancing, shouting, falling under the power. Now, we should not discount any of these effects as possibly being from God. You know, so I come from a tradition where if you saw that, you might go, oh, those people are just in the flesh, they're emotional. But we also shouldn't think, well, you know, that person who cries out and yells and trembles uh, in worship every time, they must be the most spiritual person in the room. Emotional effects, they, they don't necessarily mean anything. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, I, I remember shortly at, when, while I was attending Bible school, I remember being in a meeting uh, where someone uh, at a certain point in worship, and this had been a common occurrence at, at church for, for a, a little bit of, of time at this point. And at, at a certain point in worship, someone cried out and, and um, loud uh, tears and, and wailing and began to run. And I remember the, the impression I had, and it turns out through conversation later, many people had was, wow, you know, that, per that must have been really, uh, you know, something. How do I get to that experience with God? And I've, I've very, that level of experience, I've never felt anything like that. I mean, I, I don't want to miss out on anything God has. And I, I so value the wisdom that uh, this one instructor shared. He said, you know, yeah, when we were in class later in the week following, he said, you know, sometimes in God's presence, don't be overawed by people's manifestations or demonstrations. It's not necessarily a sign of maturity. What it may be is that person was carrying so much of a burden, so much weight on their shoulders, so much pain in their heart throughout the week, whatever it might be, that finally in the presence of God, they got relief, and man, if you'd been carrying that, you might yell out too. But it's not necessarily maturity. In fact, interestingly, as far as maturity goes, isn't it children who talk the most and make the most noise? And as we grow up, we learn how to control the tongue. I think there's a verse in the Bible about controlling our tongue. 
usually a sign of maturity, but physical effects. You know, I, as I began to study revival, especially this year, anybody heard of the Cane Ridge Revival in Kentucky? Uh, several, um, uh, several of the Church of God denominations, of which there are many, trace their roots to the Cane Ridge Revival. In fact, um, uh, there's a very influential uh, charismatic teacher uh, today, Dr. Uh, R.T. Kendall, uh, whose grandfather was saved in the Cane Ridge Revival and in the, the mid-1800s in, in Kentucky. And uh, at that time, just speaking of physical manifestation, some of the writings from that revival, one of, one of the great debates at that time about how, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Uh, speaking in tongues was a very rare phenomenon, although there were reports in the Cane Ridge Revival. Uh, actually, the leading thought at that time uh, in one camp, and it caused much division, was you know you're filled with the Holy Spirit if you've done the holy dance. There were books written about this, where people would, people would come into the meeting and go, just like today, you know I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I've got all the Holy Spirit there is. You can't tell me there's any more of the Holy Spirit. And the, the preacher would say, well, brother... There's a way we can know if you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Have you done the holy dance? I wish YouTube existed for the Cane Ridge Revival. I, I, I would love to know what the holy dance was. It was a common thing all the way up to the Azusa Revival in 1900s. There was a leading group who thought, this can't be real revival because they're not doing the holy dance. I don't know what that was. Others asserted it was a holy laughter. And uh, that might be more familiar uh, to, to some of us. So, you know, if you've laughed, if you've prayed until there's been uh, supernatural laughter, that's how you're filled with the Holy Ghost. Actually, my favorite um, manifestation from the Cane Ridge Revival is someone who, who asserted, and this caused a, a lot of turmoil uh, for some time there, someone asserted, I know I got the Holy Ghost because I was barking like a dog. And uh, he was barking like a dog for some time. But listen, when he was asked about it, what, that was out of order, that manifestation. Well, why were you barking like a dog? Now, you'll understand this phrase. When I shared this I, in, in Quebec, in French, I had to really, it's really hard to translate, but you'll get it. He said, I was, the reason I was barking like a dog is because I treed the devil. Like a hunter chasing an animal, I treed the devil. And so, you know, probably somewhere in there was a certain emotional response that got filtered through uh, Kentucky hunters thinking he probably had a real experience with God. Now, do you need to bark like a dog? I'd probably rather you didn't. But, um, but physical signs one way or another don't necessarily mean anything. Novelty, physical signs, much talk about religion. We go, well, you know, this must be a sign of revival because people are talking about God an awful lot. I think they probably talk about him a lot in hell. So uh, I don't know if the talking about religious matters a lot is necessarily a sign of religion uh, or revival. Fourthly, dreams and visions. Well, you know, people are having dreams and visions. Uh, it may be from God. It may be from Frank's Pizza. Um, uh, you know, a true revival will likely have dreams and visions, but a false revival probably would too. And so that, that's not a definitive sign. You know, if someone were to say, well, yeah, we've seen things we've never seen. People are shouting, trembling, running. People, all they can talk about um, are things of God, and they're having dreams and visions. You haven't proved anything yet. 
Bear with me. Some would say, uh, example. Having to learn things by example. Some would say that in a real revival, everything would be spontaneous. And I, I would contend that we'll see some spontaneous happenings that we did not expect. But it does not follow that uh, if some things are taught by example, well, that can't be the Spirit of God. What do I mean? Well, some would say no one should need to be shown how to sing in the Spirit. No one should be, have to have an example to hear someone else pray in tongues. But you know, you know some people would say well, that, that's not genuine, um, people being filled with the Holy Spirit there, because they just heard you do it and they're repeating it. So if learning by example um, rules out the, the reality of the experience, I don't know how to tie my shoes. Because I learned that by example. There's a tremendous amount of natural things I learned by example. Why is that permitted in the natural realm, but in the spiritual we go, well, now that's a no-no. That, do, that doesn't make any sense. So now, that, that, that just means... Um, you know, we might need to teach some things. Here's how we respond to the Holy Spirit. Here's what the flow looks like. That doesn't diminish the revival. But we can't manipulate revival into happening that way either. The presence of sin. Now, I can't say it any better than Edwards here, so I'm just going to quote him. The presence of sin is not a sign that revival is there, obviously, but it's also not a discounting sign of revival. We shouldn't say that's not revival because, well, I know those guys. I know what he did the rest of the week. Jonathan Edwards said this, It is no sign that a work is not from the Spirit of God, that many who seem to be the subjects of it are guilty of great imprudences and irregularities in their conduct. We are to consider that the end for which God pours out his Spirit is to make men holy and not to make them politicians. He's just saying, you know, you're going to see people in any revival situation who are, they're going to say things wrong sometimes. Maybe their theology isn't quite right. Maybe they don't treat their kids quite right. Now, we should aim to be right in all of those areas. But, you know, some people, criticism uh, is, is not one of the gifts of the Spirit. Some people think that, that their spiritual gift is, I can tell you what's wrong here. You and the devil. That doesn't take any gifting at all. What about a solution? What about how to make things better? Now that's helpful, right? Discerning of spirits. It's not the discerning of evil spirits. I see the problems here. Well, congratulations. I, I could do that before I got saved, right? But I mean here in a very general sense, by the way, um, People say that kind of thing everywhere. God is, is endeavoring by his spirit to bring holiness into our lives, not just to make us good diplomats or politicians. Neither, um, Edward says, are many errors in judgment or some delusions of Satan's intermixed with the work, any argument that the work is in general is not of the spirit of God. So, you know, it, people would argue, and, and I could give you lots of historical examples, you know, people said about the Azusa Street Revival, well, you know, uh, that's not real revival because this is happening. And, and there were some people practicing witchcraft in some of the meetings. And people went, well, that, that must not be of God. Well, the witchcraft certainly was not of God. Don't misunderstand me. But the presence of that being there doesn't discount the whole work. 
You go, I'm going to need a Bible example of that. Well, I would hope so. Moses, he goes uh, at God's command before Pharaoh to say, you must let these people go. And he throws his staff down, and under the power of God, the staff turns into a snake. Janus and Jambres, the, the court magicians of Pharaoh, promptly do exactly the same thing, but not with God's power. They, they did it by occult supernatural evil power, right there in the presence of God's power. And we don't go, well, that means there was nothing to Moses. No. Right, wherever God's power is in manifestation, there will be opposition and counterfeits and disguises. So that's no sign it's not a revival. Neither would be the fact that some people will fall away into error. Well, you go, you know, some, I've heard people say, well, you know, the, the thing about that revival, if that was really a revival, how could it be that so-and-so was there and they fell away from God? So that must mean the whole thing is no good. Well, by that logic, Jesus never accomplished anything because Judas fell away. So there must have been nothing to what Jesus shared with the other 11 men. No, one person falling away means that person is responsible before God for what he did. Now, what about you? Finally, on the negative sign, the last negative sign would be that preachers speak passionately of the terrors of God's law and the awfulness of hell. Some people would say if it was really revival, we shouldn't have to speak of those awful things. People said of Edwards, you're scaring people into hell. Or he said the exact opposite, actually. They said, you're scaring people into heaven. It's not right to scare people into heaven. And to which he responded, some talk as if it is an unreasonable thing to frighten persons to heaven. But I think it's a reasonable thing to endeavor to fright persons away from hell. Um, we just need to tell the truth. And if you truthfully understood what hell was, well, it, it would probably scare you. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, said, you know what might be better than all of the Bible schools we started is just to have all of our uh, uh, upcoming officers, they called them, spend five minutes in hell. That would make better preachers out of them than anything else we could do. And so... These were negative signs. These things are just, the, these nine things I mentioned, he said, these don't mean it is revival. If you see these things, they don't mean it's not revival. But he had a, a, a five signs that he took from 1 John chapter 4. Uh, we won't read those verses right now, but he, uh, in 1 John chapter 4, 1 through 6, he goes, I see here five signs that these tell me these things are real revival. And this is the important part that I, I want to share with you. Having cleared the ground of the false signs, those things may happen, they may not happen. Some of those things definitely will happen. You're going to see people make mistakes, do dumb things. I'm exhibit A. But that doesn't discount the fact that God uses people like that. But what are the positive signs of revival? Meaning, when you see these things, there's revival. And if these things are absent, regardless of the presence of anything else... I would contend we have something less than revival. The first sign is this. True revival makes much of Jesus. If people begin to esteem Jesus more highly, to love him more deeply, and to think of him more often, then true revival is taking place. How can I say that so forcefully? Simply this. Satan cannot... And he would not, if he could, 
produce this result. Satan will bring you counterfeit dreams and visions. Satan can motivate people to do all sorts of silly physical manifestations. Satan can, all those other negative signs, he can mix in and, but even if he could, he would not make you love Jesus more. He would not make you think of him more often. He would not make you think of him more highly. In fact, one of the signs, well, a warning sign to me it, uh, among, church, among Christians, among brothers and sisters in Christ, is simply this, and I've seen it happen many times, is someone gets impassioned about a certain teacher, a, certain, the, the, a, a gospel teacher, ostensibly, and yet they begin to be more enamored with that person than they are with Jesus. Listen, if the preacher you heard on Sunday, if you leave church more impressed with the preacher than with Jesus, something's wrong. That's, that's who it's about, right? And so I, I pray often, we get a lot of visitors at our church. We're, we're a, a tourist destination. God knows why, but a lot of tourists come to Collingwood, Ontario. And, uh, uh, and some of them come to our church. And, and I, I pray and, and have often said, if you leave here, I, I'm, I'm not concerned if you remember who I am. You know, the, the, the test of things is, really, if you, when you leave here, I'd like you to forget me quickly, but remember Jesus forever. That's, that would be a, a sign of revival. When, when our gospel teaching or the books we publish or the, the, our internet outreach or whatever causes people to be more devoted to that preacher or teacher or want to fight over that teacher's doctrines, we missed something. We missed something. True revival makes much of Jesus. Two, when people begin to hate and forsake sin, Satan and Satan's kingdom, this is a true revival. For the same reason, Satan cannot, and he would not if he could, cause you to hate sin and to hate Satan and Satan's kingdom. And you realize that part of your salvation, a sign of your growth in faith, is that you actually come to hate sin? Now, now stopping it would be considered a monumental step forward for many of God's children. And yet, and if, and if that's where you know, we're at at the moment, well then, we'll pray and we'll, we'll, we'll get to that step. But you see, freedom is not stopping it. You know, I, I, one person said, you know, it's been 29 years since my last cigarette. And some people would say, well, that good on him, 29 years of freedom. But then he said, I'm not making this up. Then he said, and I want one today as much as I did the day I quit. That's not freedom. That's trading one sort of bondage for a different kind. Our, our growth in Christ, and this, is, this is, is the result not of willpower, but of the Holy Spirit, is when we not only turn from sin, but we're happy about it. Mm -hmm. yeah, right. In fact, in Acts chapter 3, where we were, I was really struck reading this verse earlier this year. Verse 26, how Peter ends that little sermon. He says, God has raised up his servant, Jesus, sent him to you first to do what? To bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And I thought, oh my, we've come to a place in Jesus' church 
where if you ask people to turn from their sin, they think you're being legalistic or preaching the law or trying to put something on them. And yet the very blessing Peter says Jesus came to give is I've got a blessing for you. And we'd all go, what's the blessing, Jesus? He goes, I'm going to turn you away from your sin. Oh, no, I want to keep playing with that. Revival enables us to turn from our sin and be happy about it. Third, when people have a love and honor for the Bible, recognizing it as God's word and desiring to walk in its ways, this is true revival. Again, Satan cannot and he would not if he could put in you a desire to love and to read and to consume God's word. I say this just about having a, a hatred for sin. Did, you know, in, in Jesus' letters to the seven churches in Revelation, one of them he said, I have this against you, that, or I, this I, I have for, uh, I commend you, that you hate the same things I hate. But people, sometimes we have a love problem. Some churches have a hatred problem. We don't hate things, the right things enough. The Bible says that Jesus was the most joyful person of his generation. By the way, did you know that, uh, and I've heard this from, from psychiatrists and psychologists, depression is considered the common cold of mental illness. There was a study done at the University of Montreal, and I've, I've actually heard this study repeated in various places now. But there was a study done at the University of Montreal with water samples from the St. Lawrence River. Montreal is an island in the St. Lawrence River. And, and they took water samples, and they, they tested fish, and uh, they, they, they wanted to see how many toxins from human uh, waste and activity was getting into the water. And when they tested the fish, they found traces of ibuprofen and antidepressants. I said, my God, in this city, we have depressed people and the happiest fish in the world. But, but what that, the reason that's the case is that antidepressants and ibuprofen are used, prescribed so much, and what do you do when you're done with a prescription? You flush it in the water, right? So you might be getting more in your tap water than you know, um, but um, that's a... It should not be that things are, are prescribed that much. Now, why, why should depression be such a problem in the church? Do you know why the Bible says Jesus was the most joyful person of his generation? The verse right before that says, You have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. But too many of us are, are busy trying to play with things Jesus died to free us from. And depression is, is the result. So positive signs of revival, as I rapidly come to the end of the list, true revival makes much of Jesus. True revival causes people to begin to hate and forsake sin. True revival is when people have a love and honor for the Bible, recognizing it as God's word and desiring to walk in its ways. This is true revival. It's, it is... It, Sometimes I know what pa certain passionate worshipers, lovers of God mean when they say this, and I know there's a variety of reasons that they could say this, but sometimes people would say, well, you know, church was so great, we started to worship God and we never opened a Bible. Well, how do you worship a God you don't know? 
And how can you know him apart from his word? Right? And so we, we, we must have a love and honor and esteem for the word of God. Fourth, when people love truth and desire to bring things into the light, this is true revival. When people love truth and desire to bring things into the light. In a revival situation, here's what happens without revival. Secrets are kept. You, you know, we don't want to talk about anything, at least not openly. We, we really like talking about it behind closed doors. But, um, you know, we, we uh, don't ask me those questions. We get offended easily. We've got secrets to keep. Lies are told to protect but you see, in a revival situation, we, because nothing matters more than Jesus' glory, I, man, I want things out of my life. I, I want them out. And, and when I'm convicted of sin, man, I'll do anything I need to or have to to make it right. I, there's no secrets. There's a, a, a desire to, to make restitution and restoration. This is true revival. And finally, when people are growing in their love for God and their love for others, this is true revival. When I love God more, when I love people more, that's true revival. Now, I, I believe that the revival we will see and that, that brings all these, these true signs with it, a love for Jesus, a love for his word, a hatred for sin, a love for people, a love for God, I believe with all my heart, there'll be many signs and wonders and other great manifestations along with that. I also am convinced that all the signs and wonders without that will do us more harm than good. There, well, there, let me close with, with this two stories. Um, on the my, my mom's from, from Scotland, in the north of Scotland. Now, Scot means barbarian, because when the, the Romans and everyone uh, uh, conquered Great Britain, uh, they pushed all the barbarians, the Scots, to the north, right? And then, so it's like the ends of the earth, and then there's these islands off the northwest coast of Great Britain called the Hebrides. And uh, then there's the outer Hebrides. And on one of these islands, population of just a couple thousand people, um, uh, in the Church of Scotland in the 40s, uh, a revival broke out under the ministry of one Duncan Campbell. The condition of that church, uh, of churches all over the island at that time was pretty bleak. There were no young people in the church. Now, I don't mean there were like no young people in the sense that you're going to go to your cupboard later and go, there's nothing to eat, but there's shelves full of food there that you just mean there's nothing I like I mean there were no young people because they had died in the war many of them um, and those that were younger than that were growing up had been disillusioned and, and because of the devastation that had been wrought right on their doorstep and uh, there came a time in, at the Barva Church of Scotland where a group of people began to pray. Actually, a couple of old elder ladies came to their pastor and said, can we pray for revival? We need to pray especially for the young people because if things continue this way, there will be no church in the next generation. I said, surely let's pray. And they prayed for several weeks before 
anything happened. Actually, I, I believe it was about six months before anything, any visible signs happened. But there was a revival in their own hearts where they realized this has to start with us and getting our hearts right and getting, getting uh, some things straightened out in our own attitudes. But months and months went by and nothing happened. And I know many churches, there have been people at my home church praying for years for revival. I know there's some of you praying the same way here. Months went by, nothing happened. One day, on a Friday night, down the street from the Barva Church of Scotland on the Isle of Lewis in the Outer Hebrides, there were young people at a dance. Whatever a dance looked like in 1940s on the Isle of Hebrides, I'm kind of curious, but again, no YouTube then. Um, but the power of God, the conviction of sin, fell on that place. And the dance ended. Not because it was over according to schedule, but because all the young people left. There was such a burden from God on them that they left that and just went looking for anywhere they could find relief from the conviction of God. And while about six older ladies were praying at this church, a hundred teenagers wander through the door weeping and crying saying, we need Christ for our souls. They just went anywhere they could find relief, and thankfully they found a place that, that was praying, where the heavens were open. Finally, um, I heard this, this story from, from Brother Kenneth E. Hagen uh, in a uh, message shortly before his passing, and he said that uh, there was a church he used to be invited to preach at regularly, in, and I believe it was in Texas. But anyways, this church, they wanted revival. And so they invited all the right speakers in. Every year they had a fairly large church, all the right speakers. And any program they heard of that would cause revival, they did that program. And they had 21 days of prayer and a week of fasting and this and that. And, and all the right preachers came in. If you heard the list of preachers, you'd go, I want to go there, right? And revival never came. It, it, things seemed to be going well enough, but they just knew we're, we're going through the motions. One day, revival did come to that town. Just not to that church. It came to this other church across town. The kind of church I went to once in my high school years, where nobody brought a Bible, right? Because nobody preached from the Bible. It, just, it was a social club. There's actually, there's a church in Toronto. It was this kind of church. There's a church in Toronto right now where the pastor is openly an atheist. The denomination is trying to get her booted from the church. And she's hired a lawyer to help her keep her position. It was this kind of church. One day, they didn't expect anything to happen, Right? One day, while the pastor is preaching, or I, maybe they were singing a hymn or something, I don't know, people just begin streaming to the altar, getting on their knees and crying out for mercy from heaven. People went, got up from that place and went, the pain's gone, I'm healed. People began, there were reports that people began speaking in other tongues. That just broke out on a Sunday morning. People, what happened? And they, they, they turned to their Bibles going, Maybe there's something in here about these phenomena we've never heard. And uh, Sunday night, the place is filled again. Monday night, uh, weeks went on with this revival. And uh, the church was, was filled 
well, you know, the, this first pastor who invited all the right preachers over, he gets it kind of like Jonah. Uh, he gets upset with God. We were praying for revival, and you sent it over there. He's upset, right? Like, God, you let me down. And so he, he sets his, himself to pray and fast for a few days and gets to a place, I guess, where his anger and disillusionment had subsided and he's quiet enough he could hear uh, the, the Spirit of God in his heart. And the Spirit of God says to him, you want to know why I didn't send revival to your church, why I sent it over there? Yes, that's why I'm praying. He says, I could not send revival to your church. Why? He says, when I, sent, I could send revival over there because over there, I get all the credit. But I could not send revival to you because if I sent revival to your church right now, all that would happen is you'd go, see, I told you guys if we did this. And the Spirit of God comes to glorify Jesus. Just as Peter said, in his message. This man was healed not because I'm somebody. I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about this somebody, Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit comes to do. Not to validate me or us or what we're doing, but to, to, to make much of Jesus. And my prayer, it can, can we just close by praying and refreshing ourselves with a hope and a confident expectation of revival in this place and in this community and in this country. We need another great awakening. Amen? We don't, we, uh, we've had enough programs. Now, some of us, I, I really like this definition of a stronghold. Some of our prayer will be this way. A stronghold is this. A situation that you know that's counter to the the will and the plan of God, but you've just given up any hope that it'll change. And I, at first blush, you'd go, oh, I don't have any of that. But if you stop for a second, there might be a few more than you realize. Where if you just take stock for a moment, there's things that you, in, your, in your own heart, in your relationships, in your family, in your walk with God that you know it's not supposed to be this way, but you've just given up any hope that it's going to be any different. That's a stronghold. And that's what the Holy Spirit comes to break and to change. And he does it first by causing hope to rise up again in our heart. That my life can be different. Our worship can go to a higher level. The Holy Spirit does want to move and will visit us. Do you think there's such a thing as a people who love Jesus calling on his name for a visitation of the Holy Spirit? God, we just want to see Jesus glorified in this place and heaven going, nah. No. I, I don't think there's any such thing. I don't think there's any such thing. Let's stand to our feet and take a moment to pray. Father God, we come to you in Jesus' mighty name. And I thank you that you are good and your mercy endures forever. Father God, I thank you that Jesus Christ is Lord. He has conquered death, hell, and the grave, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he rules and reigns forevermore. I thank you, Father, that we as a people, we are hungry for you. Lord, we want to see your Holy Spirit visit our community and this nation in a powerful way. How we need a visitation of your Holy Spirit. 
So, Father, I pray that we would uh, make the, whatever decisions are necessary as individuals to, to put our own ego and pride out of the way. We know, Holy Spirit, you're not coming to validate or vindicate any of any of our own egos, but we, we get ourselves out of the way and invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and make much of Jesus Christ, to, to demonstrate who he is, what he's done, and what he can still do today. And Father, I speak to, I, I, let's just pray in the Holy Spirit for a moment. I believe that as you're praying in the Holy Spirit and continue to do so, I believe that as you're praying in the Holy Spirit, some of you, there's strongholds, things that you know they're not God's will. You've just sometime in the past gave up hope about them. I want you to call those things to mind. A child, a nephew, a family member, someone you thought, oh, there's no hope for them. They've gone too far. It's not too late. It's not too far. Situations you've given up hope. Father God, I pray for these situations that are in our hearts and minds right now for hope to spring forth afresh and anew. Lord, that you can and you will do everything that Jesus made possible for us if we'll put our trust in you, if we'll get our hopes up, if we'll raise our expectations. Father, in John Wesley's ministry, you, you shook a nation under the power of God. Under Jonathan Edwards, you shook a nation under the power of God. In Cane Ridge, Kentucky, you shook a nation. Father God, do it again in our day. Do it again in our day. We're hungry for you. We're hungry for you. And we invite you to have your way and to glorify the name of your son, Jesus Christ. I speak hope and confident expectation over situations you'd given up on. I invite you to lift up your eyes, to lift up your eyes and hope in joyous, confident expectation of God doing good. You know anything God can do, prayer can do. Anything God can do, prayer can do. Nothing is impossible. There are no hopeless situations. Because of Jesus, your situation can turn around. Father God, I thank you for a sense of expectation rising up on our hearts. And I thank you that hope will not disappoint us when we put our trust in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Scott. And uh, I'll just turn it.